Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being tape recorded. My name is Paul Maliri and this is X Job Downloaded. And today I'm going to interview my brilliant cousin, Stephen Burke. Now, Stephen is a former member of the Metropolitan Police and now works in private industry doing a number of different things. But uh, good afternoon, Stephen. Hello, Paul. How are you doing? I'm good, mate. I'm good. It's lovely to see you down in, uh, in the West Country. But I ask this of everybody, where did it all begin for Steve Burke and... What was the motivator to join the Metropolitan Police? Oh, my God. Well, basically, I, I couldn't become a motor mechanic. Sounds stupid, doesn't it? Is that right? But, um, yeah, I was mad on cars when I was a kid, when I was at school. Dad used to drive great big dumper trucks down the local quarry, so I just loved all that. Um, but unfortunately, um, at our school, well, they didn't do GCEs, um, and and I never did that well. At, never did that well at school, uh, and so I didn't get the five that you needed to be sure of getting a uh, an apprenticeship. Well, I so um, my my careers teacher more or less said, "Well, Bert, that's it. See you. Good luck with good luck with the rest of your life." Uh, that was a bit harsh, but it wasn't quite like that. But of course, I had to go away and have a rethink. What am I going to do? And then a mate of mine who I play um, who I play tennis with, um, perhaps every weekend or so, he said to me, "Oh, I won't be playing tennis with you now for the rest of uh, well." He said, "I don't know when I'll when I'll be able to do that." And I thought, "What have I done to offend him?" And I just said, well, "What's this all about?" He said, "I'm joining the police cadets." All right, okay. What's that all about? And then I started asking the question, "How did you do that?" Because I never knew he was interested in that. But I suppose secretly we all at some stage might think, oh, what might being a copper? Um, and I did, and I was, I was quite interested in what he did. And he just told me he applied to uh, the, the selection centre, Met Police, and um, and that was it. And he, he told me what, he, what, what we needed to do or what I needed to do, and I didn't need the qualifications. I just needed to pass an entrance exam. So I got my mum to uh, give me a brush up on arithmetic and maths so I could get over that side of it. And, um, yeah, that was it. So I went off, passed the exam, all the other tests that you do in selection. Uh, joined the Met Police Cadets on uh, 9th of September 1973. Wow. How's that? Why, why the Met yeah. and why not Essex? Because you, you're a Grays lad. Why, why did yeah. you go for the Met? Um, I think, from what I recall back in the day, the the numbers that the Essex required were a little bit more selective. So you needed the you needed the O's, right. so you needed the O levels, um, and I didn't have that. Um, and the Met just seemed to need more. And of course, this was cadets now. This wasn't recruits. Yes. So uh, so the and the the, the Met Police uh, Cadet Corps 
was pretty massive, pretty uh, and really, I suppose, uh, pioneering, led led the way back in the day because it was um, it was the the brainchild of Andrew Croft, who was a colonel uh, who was uh, an Arctic explorer amongst amongst other things, and uh, you know, an officer during World War Two, and he brought that kind of training um, to to the police service, and. Um, Whereas I, I did, wasn't fully appreciative of it at the, at the time, um, it's when I landed there at Hendon, and we actually started, you know, getting the the inputs or the the, the lessons and that. Then I thought, all oh, right, this is not a bad place to be, really. So um, that was it in a nutshell. It was just really about qualifications and um, how, what, where could I go? Where was it uh, more likely I could end up? So. Uh, yeah, I went for the Met. And it was a full residential course, or full, yeah. fully residential, wasn't it? So yeah, you, two, you, and half, you, two and a half years. Two and a half years. And how many people joined the cadets when you joined in 73? Wow. Well, um, crikey, I can't remember. It must be, could be 50 to 100. I mean, uh, probably about 50. Right. So they used to have, um, from what I recall, three intakes a year. So I went in the September. Yes, it would be three intakes a year. So mine was uh, my my um, intake was A three seventy three, and then I'd have two that preceding that. So uh, yeah. And what what so did your mum and dad think? Time. I mean, bear in mind, you know, the Irish background and and whatever. What what did what did mum and mum and dad think about you joining the police service? Oh, proud as proud as punch. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, originally, I'd um, when when I had that dilemma at school with the careers, I thought to myself, hmm, do I go and join the army. In fact, I didn't mind that drive big trucks at sixteen. You know, that was my narrow-minded view of it then. And of course, as soon as I put that to my mother, I'm thinking, I'll join the join the army, mum. She cried. Yeah. Yeah, she cried. Said, yeah. Oh, you're going to go to war? I thought, oh, right, okay. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> So <laughs> I'd already I'd already kind of set my sights on the on the police cadets and uh, yeah that was proud as punch. So um, so off I went. I, it took them a while to get used to me not being there. Yeah. Because I think that, in, that intervening period between leaving school perhaps about April time and joining in in September, I stayed home and cooked all the meals, cooked Is the it? dinner, tidied up, did a bit of housework. Yeah, so they, they they kind of had a their lackey had gone, I suppose. But uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, the interesting times. And what sort of things would you have done in the cadets? I mean, we, we're talking about a time where there was no internet. It was everything would have been classroom based or out of bounds and stuff like that. What what sort of stuff would you get involved in? Well. On the academic side, I've got a couple of O-levels that I wouldn't have got at school. Right. So uh, there was an academic uh, element to that. So um, if you were if you were like me and you didn't have any qualifications, then you you that you'd look to attain some uh, some sort of GCE qualifications. But if you already had some of that, they they teach up to about up to A-level standard. Um, so some of the some of the, the guys, and it was guys at that stage. The the, the females didn't uh, they didn't uh, come into uh, the cadet corps until I'd left, so about 77, 78, something like that. Um, 
But yeah, and then there'll be internal examinations as well. So there'll be an academic, and it was all kind of um, the, the 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 it was Kilburn Polytechnic. They oh, okay. That, that was the academia that um, that kind of run that 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 side of it for the for the police. So yeah, so we had that, and then then uh, the, well, the boast was at the time that we would as uh, as individuals or as recruits, we'd get about twelve percent. Twelve percent of the time was spent learning police theory. Yeah, so it would be the history of police yes. and so forth. They were very careful not to not to kind of give us too much so that we we, we kind of overstretched ourselves when we were in City Street because we weren't coppers really. Um, so so there was that. The rest of it was kind of leadership, outward bound, um, sports training, that kind of thing. So a lot of PT training. Um, we'd uh, expeditions in Snowdonia, that kind of thing, rock climbing, abseiling, all, all those all those types of things, which I actually loved. Yeah. I mean, I was a, quite a quite a, uh, an introverted kid, if you like, and. Um, I kind of embraced that structure, you know, that regimented way um, about it. We had an ex-RSM as a drill instructor, so we'd uh, we'd be doing that uh, in the mornings as well. There'd be drill instruction as part of your um, your schedule, and I didn't mind it. I, I kind of enjoyed it. Whereas some of the other kids, you could see they were all, all struggling a little bit, you know, with that kind of discipline. Um, I, I just kind of soaked it all up. So, yeah. Did you get sent to Borough whilst you were there? Did you go and work alongside the regular cops? Yeah, but you did that. You know, there's two phases to the um, to the cadet corps. So phase one was the Hendon-based uh, structure. And then after about, I did about two years. I did two years at Hendon. Then they pushed you out to, there were four um, training centres, uh, one each corner of London, if you like. Yeah. So you could either go to Kingsbury, which is northwest, um, Wanstead, which I went to, which is northeast, and then you had, um, you had Sunbury, southwest, and uh, where is it? Norwood, which is southeast. Right. They kind of specialise in certain sports. So if you had an aptitude, say, to football, then you'd probably go to Sunbury. Uh, and if it was um, if it's tennis, it'd be Norwood. And if it was, what was I into? Um, I was into sort of weight training and that kind of stuff. And then I went to I went to Wanstead, but it was kind of loosely based around that. Right. So from there, from those from those um, those areas, you then get pushed out and um, you do public service. So I used to go and work um, for. Um, who would it be? Tower Hamlets Council. We used to go and work okay. there doing the wheel, meal, meals on wheels. So you, you do that. So you go out with the with the um, with the staff that did that. Um, Police-wise, I was I was based at um, or I was posted to Dagenham. Which oh, were you in Essex? Yeah. So I'd, I'd go out there and whenever whenever the cadet turned up with the regulars, it was always a load of head scratching. What on earth oh, are we going to do with this bloke? So. Um, because I could be seen as a bit of a, a millstone around their necks, really. Yeah. But, um, I got involved with them. You know, I was, I was pretty good at running after people and catching them. Was that opposite uh, main, so, main Bakers? You had the, the chemical place yeah, opposite. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, just down from Dagenham East. Dagenham East, yeah. So, uh, 
Yeah. So I kind of that that really when you're doing uh, those kind of attachments, that's really that really fuels your fire to want to get out and actually be amongst it. So it was quite a well structured course, I think, the cadets, um, because I was a um, I was the boy on the on the in the in all of my intakes because my birthday was in August. I was always um, the youngest Young in star. the class. Yeah. So I, I suppose I spent the maximum amount of time anybody could in the cadet corps. So, uh, but uh, 18 and a half, um, as it, because it had just been reduced, I went into the, um, went into the training school, still at Hendon, but uh, uh, back back to basics, really, um, uh, into Hendon in it was February 76, I went there. So, wow. so I had a good run with the cadet corps. Yeah. And when you were working at Dagnall, were you living at home or were you still were you having to travel in from Hendon? No, still in the cadet corps. Wow. Yeah, still in the cadet corps. But of course I was close to the home, so it was yeah. uh, it was nice to be to be able to jump in the car and sort of um spend more time, I suppose. My my visits were were more frequent. Yeah, yeah. So so that was good. So yeah. you you've done you go and do your basic training at Hendon and you're how did you find that? Bear in mind, you've done your cadet bit and you've you've lived within the institution for the preceding three years. How did you find going back and doing the legislative stuff? A bit tough, yeah, a bit tough uh, because um, um, you know my my schooling, if you like, wasn't. Um, I, did, I did. I suppose the reason my schooling wasn't so good. Um, I suppose between from primary school, from the whole of primary school, I suppose. I was in and out of hospital with ear, nose and throat type um, That must issues. be a family thing. Yeah, was it? Yeah, I, I but yeah. Tons was out when I was four. I had mine out twice. Did you? They didn't do it, they didn't do it right the first time, <laughs> but then that would be typical, wasn't it? <laughs> but... Um, but yeah, so I lost a lot. Of, I lost quite a bit of time at school. Plus, the fact was I interested in it. Probably not, if I'm honest. And I wasn't. I was interested in certain things. I could draw you a lovely picture. So <laughs> I, I still, to this day, say that cutting out and colouring it all takes place on Friday afternoons. So um, <laughs> you know. So I quite I quite enjoyed that side of it. Um, so, so yeah, going back to your question, training school is a bit tough. I never got back squatted. I always passed exams every week because they, that's the way they used to do it. I don't know if it was the same in Essex. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. We, yeah, we went to Essex. It's yeah. 16-week course, I think, wasn't it? Um, but, yeah, I did okay. So, yeah, I got through it. Um, wouldn't say I was a, uh, an A student. I wasn't going to go to Brams Hill in, as it was in those days or anything like that. But um, I did what I needed to do to get by. And, um, yeah, it was okay. Still enjoyed it. See, I was a bit institutionalised, wasn't I? Because yeah. I was used to staying away from, from home. A lot of um, – because in the, in the training school classes, there were only two of us that were ex-cadets. Right. The rest were all from Civvy Street. So any, any, our class captain was uh, an ex, ex-military, was ex-army, but you had people from, you know, uh, teachers, um, journalists, you know, kind of a right mishmash of people. But there was an upper age limit then 
which there isn't now. And there was a height no. height level as well that you had to attain before you could even be considered. So which that's right, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, well, now. I, I didn't have any problem. With no, the you didn't, mate. I, think I had the I think I had the Burke Walsh um, kind of stood in the baby bio. I think. I think and, you um, have, mate. Where was your first posting after Hendon? Where did you go to? East Ham. Wow. Yeah, East Ham. So it was just along the road, Barking Road from Upton Park. Yeah, right next to the town hall. Mm. Or yeah, on, on the other corner of the town hall. Yeah. My mum's my mum's granddad worked. There was a, used to be a public mortuary just down the road from. Um, That's right. Yeah. He, he worked in there as a mortician. Yeah, just but next to the Hammers pub. Yeah. That was there. Yeah, the old public mortuary. Yeah. yeah so my great grandfather worked worked there. But um, yeah, so I know it's an area that I know really well. But so you're at East Ham. I mean, and East Ham then completely different to the way it is now. The demographics have changed a lot in fifty years because mm-hmm. that's what we're. Is it fifty years? Not quite fifty years, is it? But um, getting on that way. He's getting on that way. But the demographics, and mm-hmm. you still had the hangover from. You still had people there that were been there during the Second World War because the Second World War had only finished thirty years beforehand. I mean that's yeah. it's bizarre, isn't it? That, but you would have had that, and that you had the East End lifestyle there. What was it like to work in? Because there was still there was organised crime groups. You still had the, you know, the, the the hangover from the craze and all that lot. What was it like? Yeah, well, um, there was there were still those families um, operating in in the. Canning Town's no a notorious place for you know that was that was really a den of um, mischievousness, shall we say, and, and lawlessness. Um, but it, it kind of did, did stretch across the borough. But of course, there were there were higher concentrated crime areas than others. So all the nice residential residential bits that's where they used to come and burgle, and then just take everything back to Canning Town. Yeah, that's a bit harsh, I know. But no, but fair. It's kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. So when we were, you know, when you're on night shift, you'd always be mooching around the the nicer residential areas to, uh, to hopefully find burglars. Yeah. Because it was quite it was quite rough, and burglary was easy, wasn't it, in those days? Oh, because it was. Nobody had alarms. The lock 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 in of properties wasn't that sophisticated, and people didn't have that attention which you get these days. That attention or that that knowledge. Or awareness of what's going on in your area. So, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was a, I say it was a different world then to what it is now. And mm. Canning Town has still got some, you know, criminal, oh, criminally yeah. active gang gangs out that way, because you were you were near the docks, so you had all the all you know the stuff that came out of the docks, which was still probably just coming to the end of their service, weren't they? In that they sort were. of time. It was still um, there was still dock active activity. The PLA police were still in still yes. operating in that area, and um, you know we used to, you know, we used to rub shoulders with them, you know, um, when there were crimes, and you know, just really to be neighbourly and say, you know, hello, we're around, and because we were there, response if you like. Oh yeah, we were, you know, right on their doorstep. So it was quite. It, it was a good. Um, yeah, good, you know, kind of collaborative, what they call it, collaborative working, if you like. Yeah. So, that was quite, 
that was quite good. Yeah, and it was um, <clears throat> it was interesting when you used to see the old dock bridges open up and the ships used to go through. And then as if, you know, I suppose within a few years when it was all declining, you kind of missed it. And it looked very, it's quite sad Same, to see everywhere, yeah. you know, everywhere derelict. And, you know, gradually, as we know, everything's been kind of reshaped and we've got uh, an airport there now. We've got XL. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Big, uh, conference centre. Uh, the the, um, the town hall, if you like, has moved. Uh, what building one thousand, I think it is now down on the docks as well. So it's all kind of been uh, regenerated. I, I, yeah. I don't know, I don't know if you watch many films, but the the film The Long Good Friday, which is Helen Mirren and Bob Hoskins, mm. that was yeah. sort of nineteen seventy nine, and that, there was a lot of it was filmed in that area, and the the. The buildings were derelict, and it was all coming to. A, but fortunately, there's you know regeneration has has come about quite quickly. You've still got the Tate and Lyle building on the other side of the river, and all the all the you know there's still quite a lot there. But as you say, the um, they spent some serious money in that neck of the woods. And when I was a, when I was a young kid, my grandfather, my mum's dad, would drive us up to West Ham, and we would park at the town hall. Because you could park there, and then we'd walk all the way down into Green Street. And so, and I always remember, and I don't ask me why, but Emil Ford, the singer, was playing at the local cinema, ABC or whatever it was, on the right hand side as you walk down. The Granada. Was it a Granada? There you go. And he was singing there. I mean, that must have been oh, 78, 79. Well, the Beatles, the Beatles actually performed there. Oh, did they? The Beatles performed way before my time. I hate yes. to say, but back in the back in the sixties, in their well, I say their heyday, but when they were kind of before they they got got to the hiatus, if you like, yeah, that was that was the one of the one of the locations they performed at. So it's quite a, well, I suppose, no, yeah. you know, but what you've said, it, it, I mean, it's quite a, an a, an iconic. Location. Oh yeah, it is. I mean, that, I I just love. I still love that part of East London. Um, I don't go there now because it's everything's over at London Stadium. But I still, I've got very fond memories of going to Upton Park and Green Street mm. and the and the market, Queen's Market and all around there. Nathan Nathan's Pioneer Shop. Yeah. Yeah, down on the Barking Road. Yeah, it's um it's funny, isn't it? Mm. So, how mm. long were you at uh, East Ham? How long? I did about, I did, well, Newham, um, I did 12 years, got promoted in, I was about 1989. I went, I left and I went to, uh, went to Western Central, I went to Vine Street as it was. Then. Oh, did you? What was that like though, yeah, the difference so, between so, the two? Sorry. What was it, what was sorry. it, what was that like going from East Ham on promotion to Vine Street, going to Western Central? Yeah, pretty, uh, well, it's complete chalk and cheese, really, because uh, Newham was a, a copper in paradise in terms of, you know, uh, arresting people for crime. Yeah. You know, and sort of good crime, because, you you know, you talk about the crime families, but, um, you know, there was, that was the activity in that area. And then... Um, when you get promoted or when you get notification of your, you know, your promotion, that you do get given a, an option as to where you want to, you know, if they can fit you to where you want to be posted, 
And of course, I wanted to go to Hackney of all places because uh, that again, that was another busy area. And I fancy going there, and I knew a few people that worked there. Um, but that, but Hackney, if you if you like, was full up to you know there was no room, no room at the end. But my boss at the time, a bloke called Bill Griffiths, finished up at DAC. He was a superintendent, quite a quite an influential chap, really. And um, he sat me down. And he said, "Well, you know, where do you want to go? What do you want? What, you know, what are your interests?" And he said, "Well, why don't you have? You know, if you can't get to, to Hackney, why don't you go do something completely different?" And so I did. And uh, I applied for, uh, he, and he said to me, I think he, he, he said Vine Street was a good place to go. Not there anymore, I hasten to no. But, um, yeah, so I did. I applied, and that's where I went to. And uh, that was, yeah, that was about 88 I went there. So, and, um, yeah, completely different. You know, I never had such a sore writing hand in all my life. Oh, really? Just being cuss, cuss the office for oh. um, at Vine Street because it was, you know, they used to wheel in the, you know, the girls for soliciting, sex workers, I think they call them these days, yeah, yeah. to be trendy. Uh, and, um, you know, other, I used to call it street cleaning because they were literally low-end uh, offences. They weren't necessarily criminal acts as such. You know, there were people that were just being, I guess, public nuisance that kind of thing. But, of course, they used to come through our charge rooms um, in a procession. I don't know how many of those types of um, offences get investigated now. But it's quality of life and support, isn't it? Because, actually, we used to call them Toms, didn't we? But if the if the, the sex workers, prostitutes, Toms were allowed to pro- proliferate, then it had a massive impact on the local community. But equally... In those days, they didn't get the support that they probably needed because you've got the human trafficking and all that sort of stuff. That was, but I wonder if that's that type of policing still takes place. Um, I suppose the cynics amongst us would say, "Well, where are the police officers? You know how are they, how are they deployed now?" Yeah, um, I'm sure there are. You know, people still walk the beat as you and I would know it. Uh, police officers still walk the beat uh, because. You know, the, in those areas in in the West End, you can't get about too easily otherwise. So quite often it's quicker to walk than to jump in a car and yeah. go on a hurry up in some areas. So I'm sure it still goes on. Um, to what volume they're, they're arresting uh, people these days and, and the custody suites. You haven't got a custody suite just around the corner anymore. No. So uh, I think they, they, I think the nearest... Well, I, don't, I wouldn't even can't even think where the nearest custody suite might be to uh, to West End now. Whether I think West End Central's closed as well. Yeah. So um, they probably have to go somewhere like Belgravia or even further afield. So the you know quite often, um, you know. I, I, it's a shame because I mean, get, people might get pro- prosecuted by fixed penalty notices. Who knows? Sex workers have gone to an online status, you know, so yeah, sure. everything's arranged through that allegedly. Um, mm. But yeah, is the the world of policing has changed? How long were you a custody sergeant for? Probably, uh, probably about a year, I reckon. But in in those days, it wasn't. Um, I think if you're in modern police and if you're a custody officer, you're a custody officer. Yes. There isn't that much, there's not much diversity now. No. Um, But when, in my day, 
uh, we did a bit of everything. So you could be a section sergeant. I even drove the drove the area car a few times. Yeah. Because we were down on drivers. Um, yeah. So it would you know you do patrol, or you do custody, or even a controller uh, in the, in the control room, the comms. As it was, so I did. I did a variety of things, but in at, at Vine Street, I guess I was there about it's about nineteen about nineteen ninety one. I went to clubs and vice. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And yeah, and um, that was interesting. I was um, clubs and vice. I mean, it was a specialism. It's a specialism, specialist post really for. You know, um, I guess my my role there it was only on attachment because I'm very careful to you know as the attachment how long you're exposed to you know that kind of yeah. uh, that kind of work. Um, so I did about a year, I think it was six months or a year, and working on uh, what they call juvenile protection right unit, which was uh, you know sort of dealing with uh, you know kids that are perhaps run away, missing persons, that kind of thing. Yep. Kids that kind of get drawn because so many used to travel to London to sick their pot of gold, if you like, and end up on in the you know in the in the vice trade. And um, we're pretty much looking at um, there was there would be the street offences which would be one half of the unit I was on that, that dealt with the prostitution females. My side of it was uh, in Petuni, that kind of real dingy side of uh, mm. sort of street life, if you like. Um, but then, you know, in the, in the more specialist um, areas of clubs and vice, they were actually starting to deal with the human trafficking issue. So even back what, in, the, in the, the early 90s, and they were, you know, they were getting involved in that then. And of course, as we know now, it's quite a big business. Oh yeah, it's absolutely huge. So it's quite an insight. I wouldn't say I enjoy it. It, it was, it's enjoyable to be there to to work on work on teams and with some good people. It was great. My work, not really my cup of tea. You know, um, obscene publications, that kind of thing, which was just. Uh, with, you know the legislation dealing with that was so weak oh. that you kind of, you you kind of felt that you were you know you were you were where it's just just crazy it's like sweeping water down a drain really it's, there's no um, you know there's you didn't really get a great deal of kudos from that kind of work no. not that's what we went there to do but you, sometimes you need to feel as though you've achieved something it's got to be fulfilling and we did yeah and we didn't. We didn't quite often think that, no. you know, because and again, you know, you were battling, uh, you were battling the, the, the you know, the, the legal profession, and um, we were finally trying to find new ways uh, to um, to prosecute offenders, which, which as you know, uh, can be quite a challenge when you're looking at the, the the legislation you have to work with. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, it can be quite tiresome, can't it? Mm, yeah. Was that at Vine Street as well? That was um, that that well. That was over at Bow Was it Bow Street? Was Bow Street? It was started Bow Street and then it, uh, Charing. Then it, oh, they got me. West End Central. Right, that's where I went. Yeah, West End Central. We were there. So literally just up the road, right, I guess. Because yeah. Bow Street's a swanky hotel now, isn't it? Just yeah. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. 
there was a sad day when they closed it, but um, we move on, don't we? I yeah, suppose. absolutely. So you were in, um, you're mm. in central London, and the RA is still very, very active in mm. London at that time. Hmm. Terrorism had a different face to it to to the one that we've got thirty years on. How did that impact on you and your policing and the policing style of the Met at that time? Um, well, you're aware of it, and you know you're, you know, we're out there, and we're, you know, you're looking for suspect packages. We, we're starting to get more um, more used to evacuations and cordons and, you know, it's quite obvious that, um, you know, we, we the Met had its own expo, so it had its own uh, sort of bomb disposal yeah. group. So it was always, um, you're, you're aware of um, that situation because of the, you know, you regularly used to see the, you know, the expo bombing around, pardon the pun. Yeah. Um, but um, so yeah, we were we were aware uh, we were aware of that, um, and you know, just sort of pleased it accordingly. But it wasn't. Um, I don't think it was the it was the threat that we we experienced today. There's a different kind. So um, I think it's, it's really hard to describe, but. Um, I think the that threat back back in those days, they, those people wanted to go home at night. Yeah, you know, we, we we didn't have we we didn't have that threat where people were prepared to take their own lives to achieve their ends, if you like. And I think it's more sophisticated today. Mm. I mean, the the um, mm. the provisional RA, they you know, they'd set a device, they'd make a phone call, and hopefully some, you know. It would mitigate the, the the damage and people would get out. It didn't always work like that, as we know from the Harrods bombing, etc. But um, mm. which we're coming up to the anniversary of. But but now I think it's it's more sophisticated. The the risk, the threat, the insider threat as well. Um, mm. But I still think yeah. that we, I, I, the reason I ask that is because I think we were quite blasé to it in a lot of ways. I mean, in '89, Andy Mudd. Um, was blown up in Colchester, which was obviously a town close to me, where he lost both his legs. And we, but we were just we just lived with it. Probably yeah. just, it's probably the same now. Maybe the coppers are more tuned into it. I don't know. I mean, we did have um, obviously we had the Iranian embassy siege about eighty one and something yeah. like that. Um, and then the yeah, and so you know the threat was there, but it wasn't. Um, it didn't really seem to be structured in, you know, in, in there wasn't a constant to it. No. You were aware that it was always a possibility. And I think we were slowly tweaking when we when we look, looked at our um, our events, if you like, that went on in, in London, of course, it was, you know, anything from theatres to ceremonials, if you like. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a gradual kind of change in policing in terms of numbers, in terms of, you know, searching, for instance, you know, the old, the, the pulsar, you know, the, yeah. you know, our search, our search teams became more, uh, more relied upon to, um, to do, I suppose, pre-event screening, that kind of stuff, all part of that. Yeah. So, yeah, so, yeah, there were, there were some subtle changes. I suppose really being an ordinary, as I was then, been an ordinary street copper 
you dealt with ordinary street things. That was your that was the number one yeah. requirement. And um, God forbid if anything dreadful happened, like uh, anything sort of terrorist related, then you had to up your game and and things became, you know, focus on that particular that 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 challenge at that particular time. Yeah. Fortunately for me, um, as a as a you know the uniform sort of street cop at that time, nothing, you know, in, in, in the West End affected me like that. Um, it wasn't until uh, I moved into, uh, I suppose, diplomatic protection that I kind of got a bit more involved in that because you're more specialising, you're, you're directing your your operations to the, that, that counter-terrorist yeah. Um, yeah, strategy, if you like. And what year did you move yeah. to DPG? Uh, that was about 94, I think it was. Yeah, but it was 94 because I did a couple in, uh, I did a couple of years, no, I did about a year on clubs and vice. Then I went into complaints. Did you? That was interesting. Yeah, yeah I did bet. complaints for a couple of years. Yeah. As it was then before, um, I don't even know what the acronym is. If the, CIB3 or CIB2 or, mm. oh, I don't know. But yeah. I mean, back in those days, you had CIB3. CIB two, was it CIB? Anyway, CIB um, dealt with the, shall we say, the serious, the, the serious offences yeah. of uh, allegations, and um, uh, I worked on area complaints, so it's probably oh, more okay. localised, which is probably around um, you know, people's behaviours, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So well, it wasn't it wasn't so massive, but of course, if you you uncovered anything that was was of a more serious nature than that that, um, that got uh, pushed up the road, as we would say, that, 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 you know, sort of someone else would sort of take that on. But it was an interesting, it was an interesting insight into what people did get up to, you know, their, oh. their vulnerabilities, if you like, and some of the daft things that were done, you know, in with good intention a lot of the time, so much, so much of it was good intention. Um, but uh, people just let their guards down and, you know, perhaps kind of get a bit overzealous. And, and uh, that's pretty much what it was really at that level. Yeah. But, you know, as obviously, as we know, uh, which has uh, sort of certainly played out in the press over recent years, there are some rotten apples amongst oh. there, you know, amongst there. But it's no difference. It's no difference to any other town with 136,000 people in it. Yeah, absolutely. It's no different whatsoever. Well, it is different because there's fewer bad apples in that 136,000 and everybody's got a different motivator. Yeah, I absolutely hate the people that have let the police service down. And I, and I hate the police for, for protecting them sometimes. They're silly because what they, what they do is instead of saying, yeah, you're right, we got that wrong, the police do need a complaints department, absolutely. But sometimes the public have to listen to the voice of reason because I'm not just saying this, but you are probably one of the most reasonable people that I know. You're very considered in, in everything that you do and you're ideal for that job. But I can guarantee there will still be members of the public that wouldn't take your word that everything had been done correctly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say that, but um, I'm going to wind the clock back a bit now. But... Do you remember? Do you remember the days before CPS? 
I, 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 no, I don't. I didn't serve then, but I do remember. I do know of it, yes. And uh, we used to present our own cases. Our own at cases court. at court, so, yeah. And, and I think that's, that's, that's quite a um, – I often think it's a good point to make because um, a lot of our I – th- I think we – you know, policing would do well if um, if police officers actually understood what you have to what you have to sort of put together to actually prosecute a case and, and to have a have a good um, a good case for prosecution if you like absolutely and um, and I think if I think of if I was to look back and think well what was one of the most valuable things you learned when you when you were a police officer it would be that is having those few years before. Crown Prosecution Service came, where you'd, and okay, we might go to court and have to prosecute a traffic offence, okay, somebody with no documents, that that kind of thing, which was nothing on a grand scale, but in turn it gave you that experience of standing before a a magistrate or magistrates, you know, and answering questions, answering their questions and questioning uh, um, witnesses, And, and that... That I think gave me quite a good ground in to be considered. So, coming back to to actually being um, being a complaints investigator, you pretty much know when you've you know when there's a case against somebody when there isn't, and you know about as you say about being considered. So, I mean, I think unfortunately uh, the police lost a lot of that when as soon as Crown Prosecution Service came in. Which kind of makes sense. It does make sense that you know that that all that side of um, that side of law is taken away from police officers, and they can concentrate on, you know, actually detecting offenders. But um, it was quite a useful. I think it was, it was quite a useful time for me. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, w- I would agree. If I, I, I watch with amazement when I see some of these YouTube and all, you know social media is the death knell of of policing because mm. when they've got a camera in their face, I would hate it. I would absolutely hate it. I would probably kick that camera from here to next Christmas across the road. Mm. And I, I, I am, I, I'm amazed. I admire the restraint of these young coppers. I really do. But mm. when you are there being filmed. And someone says to you, we can't do that. Well, if you can do it, you should know what the legislation is that gives you the power to do it, you know, whether it's the Public mm-hmm. Order Act or, sure. or whatever it may be. And we are talking public order most of the time on these types of things. But I just don't think that whether they're taught legislation or whether they – it's almost – I've watched one the other day and this young couple might as well said, well, because I said so. Now, I get that back in our day because actually it was – well, I said you're going to do it, you're going to do it. But then nobody mm-hmm. had a camera in my face. And I just, I do feel for them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, oh, I think it's a tough old Yeah, it's tough a tough job. job. It is a tough job. And uh, and I think probably their their conditions of service are completely oh. different to what else were. You can't you I know, couldn't so imagine it, mate. I couldn't imagine it. But mm. So when you, when you go from complaints uh, and discipline to, did you then go on to the DPG? Yeah. What made what yeah. made you did you apply for it or how did that work? I fancied uh, I always quite fancied protection. I, I did fancy that and um 
I suppose when I say protection, I'm thinking about probably more the close-up stuff. Yes. You know, when you're perhaps protecting ministers or royal royalty, if you like. So I was always kind of interested in that. And um, and and at time at uh, Vine Street, I'd seen some people come out of that on promotion and, you know, sort of talk to them, if you like. And I thought, yeah, that might be something to aspire to. And um, when I was... Um, when I was at Complaints, if you like, that was in the building which is now occupied as New Scotland Yard. So it was on the embankment. Oh, okay. And uh, and of course that so that building is if you, if you come out of the building, turn left and turn left again, keep walking, you get to Whitehall, cross the road, and you're in Downing Street. Yes. So um, um, so the DPG operated from that building, the same building I've worked in in Complaints. Right. And, uh, and I used to pass the chief inspector of DPG's office every morning on the way to the top floor. And, uh, and I used to get talking to him about, um, you know, just the time of day, really. And then as I was coming up to the end of my tenure on, um, uh, on complaints, um, I thought, well, I'll give DPG a go. It's just really a coincidence. And, and I'd kind of, I've got a bit more of an idea about it working in the same building as that as that that group, uh, and so I applied for it and I got in. And then I was then based back in the same building, so I've gone from the top floor to the to the first floor, and uh, I was a base uh, working as a base or relief sergeant on DPG at uh, what we used to used to call it A2 base then. At um, it was either called it was either Cannon Row, pretty much Cannon Row, because you know, the Cannon Row used to occupy that little complex, yeah. which is now Parliament buildings. But, um, yeah, so I, I um, you know, started work there. At, um, and it was, again, it was purely, you know, one door closes, another one's there, and, you know. And, and I thought, well, I'm going to keep moving with this. I didn't want to become rooted. No. Not that I could have done in complaints. The complaints was a clear two years and then you're out. Um so uh, I knew I had to look for somewhere else to go. And I, and I thought to myself, yes, yeah, what I'm going to try. And, and I, th- I was thinking to myself, it might be a, it might be a logical path into probably closer protection work. And what sort of stuff would you do there on, on the DPG? Depends on what base you worked at, um, because each base had different resp- re- responsibilities. So diplomatic protection was ministerial buildings, government buildings, if you like, but then you used to look after the embassies and the missions under the Vienna Convention. You know, that was the legislation. So uh, an embassy is uh, anything other than a high commission building. So, you know, if it was Australia, it'd be a high commission. Yeah. If it was the US, it would be uh, an embassy, of course. So, um, uh, and pretty much that's that that's the way it worked so we had um <clears throat> i forget how many people what the established establishment was at the dpg but uh, they were spread far and wide across you know central london primarily but my responsibility was down the street pretty much and um so that was having the team that used to um which got greater i suppose in down the street because as the terrorist threat grew so the fortifications and the security around the PM's offices, office, and you know that that grew as well. So um, so that that was that was my that was my priority. 
Um, and there were other, there would have been other areas, uh, other locations we would have had to check within that part of Westminster as well. So we had um, we had mobile patrols that would go off and do that. Probably, I suppose at the time, did we have some? It depends where the ministers lived. So if the ministers lived uh, within a, within a reasonable uh, reach of my base, then you, we would we would uh, send officers to that location. Right. And it kind of it kind of changed as governments came and went. And, reshuffles and so on and so forth so each time there's a there's a change in government there would be a new set of records have to be done to to you know to look and you know to look after the the ministers you know the prime minister foreign secretary home secretary if you like and probably some of the other ministers might be defense um and as, as those demands came in so we we fulfilled it and we 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 technically uh, provide the um, in conjunction with some other agencies. We provide the physical security as well as a stand-up um, right. visible deterrent, that, that that type of thing. So uh, in those days, all the all DPG would be armed. It's a bit different these days with uh, you know threat assessments and you know. Do you need to have armed cops or can you be unarmed? That kind of thing. So it's a different considerations in 2023, I think. And do they still use red red vehicles, DPG? Are they your were they your Yeah, yeah. The um I think ARVs now. I mean, when I started, we didn't have ARVs, armed response vehicles, you know, the BMWs. Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll just say that for the uh, for the purpose of our anybody else that's listening in. But um, you know, back in those days, we didn't have ARVs. We we had um, uh, we did have a, a larger response unit, um, but that really covered the whole of the area um, because I suppose in well today the threat's different, isn't it? If you think about the London Bridge incident, and, yeah, you know, and uh, of course the um, the dreadful incident that that uh, has uh, a parliament. So you know, there's there's you know, it's different uh, different requirements now. But back in those days, we had um, yeah, we used to have area cars, what we called area cars. Uh, so sort of two officers in a in a vehicle as a response vehicle, and as well as responding to to sort of alarms at buildings, they at uh, diplomatic and uh, ministerial buildings, they would also uh, be part of the response, the general police response to central London. So you know, those vehicles would quite often go to or be involved in sort of uh, uh, um, incidents that general policing, that the Westminster police officers were involved with. Right. So pretty much that. My role as a a sergeant would be to supervise all of that, and there would be two of us on a team back in those days. So invariably I'd be marching across the down street every now and again and sort of checking the perimeter, making sure the boys and girls were doing what they should be doing, the usual stuff. And um, and being around for, you know, if there were significant visitors to Downing Street, you know, sort of visit overseas, uh, prime ministers and presidents and that kind of stuff, I'd be around for that. Um, yeah. Interesting. Mm. And, and, and you, then, you saw them all, though, didn't you? I mean, over the time, from I suppose from Tony Blair to... 
you'd gone by the time Boris came in, but everything in between. Yeah, I started off with Major. Major was oh, um, wow. he was the he was the first peer. Um so then Blair took over from him. And Blair had ten years there, didn't he? Pretty of course much, he did, I yeah. think. Used to see his father, Tony Booth, used to go down there, didn't he, quite a lot? Oh, yeah, didn't he, just, yeah. yeah. Till death us do part. Yeah. I just yeah, remember going stars, down there. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I just remember going down mm. there on a Sunday. It was the 31st of July. <clears throat> and uh, we'd been up Big Ben and done the, the – it was on a Sunday. And um, I think you sorted it, and we went down to Downing Street, and he came out, Tony Booth came out, and he went straight over the road to the Red Lion. On the, on the, <laughs> Yeah, I heard he liked to drink. Yeah, I, I believe I believe so. <laughs> mm. Did you enjoy it down there though? I mean, was it a, a political post or was it a um, was it a nice nice post to be involved in? Oh, well, down the street. Yeah. yeah, I liked it. I mean, it was the seat of government. Well, I say seat of government. It's a bit like the. Uh, it's a very sort of condensed and squeezed down White House, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that, it's where the where the head of government lived, yeah, uh, if you like, and um, yeah, I liked it. Um, it was uh, for a while, yeah, I, I can, you know, it, it was okay. Um, I certainly ch- challenging at times, I suppose. If you if you you know had demonstrations going on and you you know you kind of um, you, you've got that that dynamic to deal with because. Uh, Quite often, firearms and because it was an armed posting, if you like, firearms and, and uh, demonstrators don't really go no. together too well. So there's always a bit of a challenge around that. But um, but yeah, I enjoyed it. It was it's it good to be, to feel part of that because you know um, the press were always in and out. Um, you know, different personalities in and out, football teams in and out, rugby teams in and out. You know, people significant of the day yeah. always pop along to see the see the PM. And uh, Blair was a he was a charismatic PM, wasn't he? Yeah. Blair. So he was he was very new wave, and people people wanted to be around him. And and he was he was, and of course one of his first challenges was dealing with the death of uh, Princess Diana. Of course, yeah. Diana Prince, of, wasn't it? And um, and he and of course he was, he, you know, he really had to step up straight away and deal with that, which I think a lot of people sort of gave him credit for. Yeah, absolutely. But um, just goes to show why I would never fancy being PM, mm. I suppose. But um, were you what a job? Oh yeah, absolutely. And he he did. He faced a lot of criticism over the stuff, you know, the Iraq and all that sort of stuff. Mm, yeah. Were yeah. you on duty when the Bombings. Were you still in the Met when the bombings seven seven took place? Seven seven. That all happened around about the same time as a G eight conference up in Scotland. Oh right. So I'd gone to Scotland with um, seventy. I took seventy five. What we call RPOs, residential protection officers, to to deal with that. Right. So we were mutual. We were mutual aid to Scotland. Right. Um, for that for that event, and then seven seven kicked off, and uh, I flew back early to uh, you know back to my because I, by that time I'd become I'd become the operations sergeant at uh, DPG, so my team would have been involved in you know resource management because yeah. suddenly the threat's gone up and we need more people 
doing different things, you know, need to be quite dynamic about how we're going to do that. Um, and, of course, you don't really know until, until the dust settles and you actually then start thinking about what the consequences were or are, what they could be, and prevailing threats after that. So I came back, so that's, you know, I, I, I came back from Scotland uh, straight to that, to that challenge, which was, you know, again, what can I say? It was interesting. It was, uh, it was kind of um, eye-opening, if you like. Yeah, a night- um, nightmare. Uh, yeah. Mm. It, it changed the way that we police terrorism. Mm, and, and, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and yeah. out of everything, there's something good comes, and the, the way that they they deal with terrorist incidents has, mm. has evolved and what have you. Mm. When you went up to the G8, did you fly all the RPOs up there? Because a lot of people went up on Hercules and things like that, didn't they? I don't know about your lot, but... The DPG don't go anywhere like that. No. Um, DPG, we, we occupied a funny grey area space in the whole world of uh, protection, I suppose, because the QDOS departments, which would have been... Let's call it special branch, all right? Now A squad, yeah, yeah. And I think it's called RASP now, isn't it? It is um, called RASP, yeah. So you, so you had, um, you had the close-up protectors in in A squad, and then you had the close-up protectors in royalty protection, um, and the DPG kind of um, we supported A squad when they wanted to go home to bed at night. So if we had, um, for instance. A squad will be responsible for moving the principals around, yep. and being with them when they went from place to place, and that could be to, to the House of Commons or even over across overseas, that kind of stuff. Yep. That's what they did. Um, if we had, um, and then we provide protection to their to their actual residences. So when it came to close protection and 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 sort of. Something sort of specifically like the G8, where you've got, um, you know, just well the eight leading uh, sort of leaders of those 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 countries yep. in, in one place would have to provide uh, residential security to that. So that's that's what we did there. So we now we went up. Uh, so um, when the when the whole G8 plan was being um, being put together. Uh, coordinated by the by Strathclyde, I think it was. I might get it. It wasn't Police Scotland in those days. No. So it would have been Strathclyde. And there was, uh, I think, relations were tense between um, bet- between the, the protection agencies, our, between the Met protection agencies, because the Met are charged with the protection of um, ministers throughout the country, throughout right. the UK. Um, as indeed royalty, and that includes royalty as well as ministerial. Yeah. So, um, so when they were negotiating, or when they were talking about the protection um, requirements, what they left off the list was who's going to look after these people at night or during the day. Who's going to hold the ground at the in and around the the hotel um, when the principals are all off having their meetings. And um, uh, and so we didn't belong. Although we although we supported, we didn't belong to any agency. So no, none, neither of those agencies took responsibility for the DPG. Right. 
So we so we had to work it out for ourselves, and that that included a bit of uh, bit of negotiation. I'd go and talk to my uh, my chief superintendent at that stage and say, look, here, boss, I probably need a chief, uh, need a senior, huh. senior officer on this job. And um, which he was, I think, surprised him a little bit. I mean, he was very, very good, but he surprised him a little bit because we just got on with it. And because it, it, domestically, relations were really tight and, you know, we, we kind of give and take a little bit and uh, we had good uh, good sort of uh, SOPs, really. Um, no one had ever thought about, um, well, this is going to be a bit different in Scotland. So uh, no, we went up. So long and short of it, we went up by bus. <laughs> Some of us went by car. We went by bus. I had to. Uh, I had to say to my boss, "Look, we need. I need a. <laughs> I was the rank. I was a ranking officer at Sergeant, um, because <laughs> you know, in terms of the skill set, um, there were few. There were a few inspectors that would have been firearms trained, but but not necessarily." in the position where they could go to Scotland. So it was me and um, five, six of my sort of peers, if you like, that, were gonna, that, that would manage the team. But, of course, if it all went a little bit belly up and we needed to be represented around the the ACPO table, so we needed a senior officer. So um, so there's a very a very lovely lovely fellow called Steve Woodbridge, who is our chief inspector, came with us as well. So really grateful, uh, really grateful to him. But um, but yeah, so so that was that was quite interesting. We, went, we all went up, we all uh, they all went up by bus or car, but um, and we stayed in various locations, Strathclyde University. As 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 you do when you go on mutual aid, you kind of. Um, you find all these different locations to go and uh, hang did, your hat, so to speak. How did you make the transition? You've been street cop for all this time, and then you go on to DPG and you've got to carry a Glock. How did that? How did you find that transition? Because you you became a fire, uh, firearms officer, didn't you? When you when you moved across. Yeah, yeah. Well, originally, I mean, you kind of learn on what they call a modern ten model ten, so a revolver. So they weren't going oh, wow. to trust me. One of these lovely new new Carlos Fandango sort of pistols. Um, so you do the firearms course. Um, it's getting used to. It's get, actually getting used to carrying that piece of kit, because again, back in those days. PPE, if you like, as we know it nowadays, was just didn't exist. So you had um, all you'd carry would be the firearm and uh, a spare few rounds, and another uh, that would be it. And it was it was pretty awkward because the uniform wasn't really designed for firearms officers. So I found that 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 a little bit strange to begin with. Um, but yeah, I kind of got into it. Um, you just say got into it. Yeah, it's like a, it's a new routine. Yeah, it's a new routine where you have to go and, um, as well as um, sort of sign on for duty, you have to get your firearm as well. And um, and gradually you do get used. To, you do get used to carrying it. The uh, the great dilemma is, of course, what would you do if? Yeah. So it's, it's great to be able to swan around looking you know quite yeah. uh, different and uh, but it's another thing is what, what are you going to do if if the uh if it all goes horribly wrong so yeah. 
so that that was the thing that always stuck in my mind. And what was you know because bearing in mind we were you know a high profile location was it down the oh, street yeah. originally. Yeah, and um, you know any number of things could go on there. There's there are always people who back in those days want to pull pranks and stunts and call it what you will. And if people come from all over the world to do something stupid outside Down Street to yeah. get attention, so you know what are you going to do if? Um, so that was the, I suppose that was in terms of getting used to it. That's what I had to. Uh, that's what I had to think about. But yeah, just it becomes part of your part of your routine i suppose and, and what was it That's like if you when you saw you know you had presidents and all that who was the who was the one that you went wow i've just seen you know it wouldn't be kennedy because he was dead but you know like that kennedy moment who was the who was the most high high profile that you would have seen either in downing street or within your duties well it would always be i'm bound to say the u.s president so it was always uh, G.W. Bush, I suppose, he was, he came a couple of times. Um, I mean, I've been around when um, Bill Clinton arrived, when he came, and um, I think it, but, but mainly G.W., but it's just the entourage, really. It's just the enormity of the oh. American effort when it came to, comes to looking after the, uh, the U.S. president. So, you know, everything you hear about the beast, these huge great limos that he's got is true. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the constant um, is always uh, it was all, always, uh, should we say, pretty strong negotiations to kind of cut the convoys down in terms of the number of vehicles that you'd expect to yeah. to be part of the presidential convoy. Um, but but yeah, I, I guess so because they literally used to come and fill up down the street, and the travelling staff with uh, with the president was huge. The, the number of people they bring with them, Secret Service agents, both uh, uniform and yeah. clothes. So it was all that that would be a challenge, and um, you know, just getting used to that. So yeah, but that, but, but I guess he would be the yeah, G. W. Bush, the president. He would be the, I suppose, the highest profile. Yeah. And then of course you you know, you know you do, the. Um, the many other presidents used to come and go from down the street and probably wouldn't you'd never know who they were. It'd just be another be another Jaguar or another BMW going into down the street. And, you know, although it would catch people's eye, you know, pretty much we and one of the one of the great things about the way we do protection, I suppose, in the UK is it's all very seamless. It's all very kind of a lot, lot chilled, you know, stealth like as much as you can make it, yeah. And uh, that's what we're, you know, pretty good at in the UK. When you conclude your service on the DPG, you go into private industry. Um, yeah, what do you feel your time with now, now that you've you've gone? Um, well, I went into interestingly again, winding the clock back. Interestingly, when uh, when I left the job. I went to work for Newham College of Further Education for a couple of years, who just happened to be the next door neighbours to my first police station. Well, yes. So is it, it could have been a, a bit of a volatile place every now and again because, uh, you know, when you're in the – you could be in the front office at um, 
at least then police station when the phone call comes in from the college next door can you send some coppers quick we've got a disturbance mm. so a number of times we used to run next door to to put out the yeah any melee that was going on in newham college um the last place i thought i'd ever be or work <laughs> would be newham college <laughs> further education so i went as i went there as a facilities manager or head of facilities was my title and um I worked there for a couple of years, which was really, really enlightening. I've got to say, really enlightening. Um, basically, working with a different organisation and um, realising that it's very business-like as well. Mm-hmm. So it was. So it's not just you know, that education machine. But, um, and being in a position where I used to run the security in, in that. Right. In that establishment, there was so there was always responsible for um, you know giving us things, extra things to do when I was when I was stationed at East Ham. But but yeah, that was an interesting couple of years. And from from that, yeah, I went into private 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 security, just um, doing a bit of this and a bit of that, driving, a bit of close protection work uh, on a not not so. Intense scale that we would have had in the police, but uh, yeah. you know, just sort of working for basically, you know, good being a bit of a concierge and getting people from place to place without um, getting lost, you know, that kind of thing. Happy days. So, um, so I did, uh, you know, did that. Um, bit of event security, I work on corporate events with uh, with another group of ex uh, ex ex cops, and we. It's very nice because we get to travel um, overseas, and do mm. some work, Lovely. You know, do some work overseas. But um, um, I've just come back from uh, from a week in the Alps, so I've just been over working with a with a ski company to um, <clears throat> basically coach their coach their young people how not to slide around on ice, snow and ice. When they're ferrying their passengers to the slopes, that kind of thing. So wow. it's a very, a, a very, uh, it's a it's a very nice thing to do. Uh, oh, quite challenging in some instances because a lot of them haven't driven anything bigger than a VW Polo or something. Like that. <laughs> so and so they're now going to be charged with um, with driving these people around the Alps in bigger bigger vehicles. So um, just done that and. Um, I work with another friend down here based in Cornwall. He's ex-police as well, and he runs his own tour company, bespoke tour company. So I help him out with that now and again. So we get to uh, get to take some people on there on guided tours around Cornwall. I need to get him on here, actually. Um, and what does the future look like for Stephen Berg? <clears throat> um, pretty relaxed, I think. Um, that well, probably was, sums you up, my old yeah, China. Yeah, pretty relaxed. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm getting older. We're all getting older, but um, you know, I, I don't, um, I don't intend to retire. Put it that way. I don't. Retirement doesn't really come into my, come onto my radar. And all the, all the while that I'm sort of fit and fit and healthy, um, I'll keep going. So I enjoy, I enjoy doing those things I've talked about. Uh, um, I enjoy going overseas and working on the on the special on the corporate events because that's again that's working with teams of uh, like-minded people yeah. that you, you trust and you you get on with and get a good team work work thing going. 
Um, I enjoy that. Certainly enjoy the tour guiding because this is my this is my home now. So um, being able, as, as Pete, my buddy, would say, driving around Cornwall and talking about it is not a bad gig. No. When you think you get paid for that. So so that's quite nice to be able to show people around the county and um, sort of just big up some of the some of the uh, some of the locations here. Um, although it'd be hard to big it up at the moment with the amount of water that's falling out of the sky. But um, but yeah, that's that's really interesting. Totally enjoy that. And um, walking the docks and just sort of living here is, is great. Lovely. So that's but that's pretty much the the for the, the, the foreseeable. So fantastic. Yeah. Well, Steve, thank you so much for your time today, mate. It's lovely to okay. see you, and um, lovely to speak to you as ever. Uh, but before mm. I go, I've got to just say: is there anything you'd like to add, alter, or correct in relation to the statement oh, that you made today? Like I'm on the spot now, doesn't it? Well. I'll take that as a no comment then. <laughs> no, I mean it's um, no, it's been nice of you to nice to have this chat, isn't it? Because uh, um, I've seen some of the other pods with uh, some of our relatives on. And yeah. So it's inter- it's interesting when you think what we've all done over the over thirty odd years, isn't it? Yeah. And um, you know, there. Uh, I suppose we could. Um, we could talk. We could talk a lot more, I suppose. But oh, absolutely. Um, but but no, I think it's um, no. I think pretty much covered in you know, like a potted um, a potted history. Listen, I'm going to wish you well. Have a lovely Christmas, and um, love to the family. And hopefully, I will get to see you in person soon. Well, that'd be nice. Yeah. yeah. Okay, mate. Yeah, that'd be grand. Yeah, All right, mate. Super stuff. Take care. God bless. Thank Love you. to everyone. And Thanks, I'll speak Paul. to you soon. Thanks, Paul.